Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lisa Monica, the deputy attorney general, her big unveil of the clawback uh, effort, the pilot program, that happened last Thursday where she announced that there will now be a pilot program available to companies going through corporate resolutions. That was Matt Kelly. This is Tom Fox. We're the co-host of Compliance Into the Weeds. In this podcast, we take a deep dive into the speeches by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and Kenneth Poley last week, as well as the release of the updated 2023 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Around Clawbacks. We look at what a clawback will entail, some of the potential issues, and why you need to get ahead of this now. It's a hot topic that we're able to dissect for you. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds with my co-host, Matt Kelly. First of all, Matt, welcome back. And all I can say is it was a heck of a week last week. We have a lot to go over here, Tom. They dropped a whole bunch of news bombs on the compliance world late last week. So, Matt, Lisa Monaco gave a speech at the ABA White Collar Conference. That was followed up by Kenneth Polite the next day. There was a release of an update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, now monikered ECCP, for yet another letter alphabet for us to remember. But we're, today we're going to focus on clawbacks, and we've both written about this, so why don't we just jump into it, and you want to start with Kenneth Polite's remarks about clawbacks. Well, Tom, actually, I'll even backtrack a bit further with Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, her big unveil of the clawback uh, effort, the pilot program. That happened last Thursday, where she announced that there will now be a pilot program available to companies going through corporate resolutions, that if they have clawback programs in place, and that they then claw back money from the errant executive at their business who got that compensation because he or she engaged in misconduct, if you get that money back, then you get basically a dollar-for-dollar credit against whatever monetary penalties you might also have, and you get to keep the money. So, for example, a quick math sketch here. If you have an FCPA, and it's a big mess, it ends up with a $100 million penalty, and you then successfully recoup $20 million in executive compensation from the senior sales manager who orchestrated this scheme or something like that, but you get the $20 million back, then your monetary payment is only $80 million and you get to keep the $20 million. It doesn't go to the Justice Department to offset or anything like that. It is a reduction in penalty, and the $20 million goes back into the company coffers. Conceptually, makes a lot of sense. It is part of the department's 
larger effort to hold individuals more accountable and to have companies basically be participants in that project and to have companies embrace a culture of compliance. How would you hold individuals accountable if you're the company? You'd have that clawback clause over their head, and then you would now have more incentive to actually use it, which is not necessarily an easy thing. You would have incentive to use it because you would wind up paying fewer penalties to the Justice Department. That was Ms. Monaco and her big reveal on Thursday. The very next day, her top lieutenant, Kenneth Polite, head of the criminal division, the assistant AG, he spoke at the same event, filling in more of those details. For example, you must have the clawback policies in place, I believe at the time of, well, I know at the time of resolution. You then get a reserve credit for those clawback compensation monies that you must successively claw it back within the term of the resolution. So if we're talking about a three-year DPA or an NPA, you got to get money back within three years. I don't necessarily know how easy that might be if it's going to wind up getting litigated, an executive in court who's not happy at losing all of that money. But if you do try to recoup the compensation and you fail you'll still be eligible for up to 25% of whatever you were trying to recoup. So back to our example, you were trying to recoup 20 million, you failed within the three-year term, you would still get credit for up to, what is 25%, $5 million instead of the 20, except it is subject to the review of the prosecutors and there seems like there's more uh, use of prosecutorial discretion in deciding how much you would get for a credit, and it would be greatly diminished. But nonetheless, those are a few of the points. And then we had even more specifics about how you would have a good compensation clawback program as part of your compliance program. That's all in the Justice Department's new guidelines, and we could go on for hours here. There was a ton of news last week. So I guess the uh, the part, in addition to what you've recited, Matt, was the part from Polite's speech discussing who the clawback provision was aimed at. And I'm going to quote here from Polite's speech, quote, we expect companies that use programs to address not only employees who engaged in wrongdoing in connection with conduct under investigation, but also those who had supervisory authority over the employees or business area engaged in in the misconduct and knew of or were willfully blind to the misconduct. Now, those standards have been around for quite some time, but once again, we have the DOJ specific calling out senior executives above and beyond the frontline employees or others who might have engaged directly in the bribery and corruption to those who were supposed to oversee it. And I guess I'm wondering or even worrying about how far a company must go or how deep that category of supervisors above the front lines might be. I think that's a fair question. I do think that a case that would be instructive for compliance officers to look at would be the case the Securities and Exchange Commission imposed against J.P. Morgan at the end of 2021 for employees' use of unauthorized messaging apps, those ephemeral messaging apps. And the, the case there was there was an extensive number of employees who were using 
these off-book messaging apps to conduct work and discussions. That is a big no-no for record keeping. It's a big no-no for regulatory investigations because there are communications happening and now you don't have records of it. So JP Morgan got slapped around quite a bit by that. But part of the facts there that came out in the consent order were that there were supervisory employees at JP Morgan who were either using these apps themselves when they were supposedly telling employees don't do that. They were even in on chat groups with the employees, and they were supposedly telling employees, don't do that, and they did it, or that they knew this was going on and, eh, you know, whatever. And whammo, J.P. Morgan winds up with, I think it was a $200 million penalty, an independent compliance consultant who is now going to be J.P. Morgan's new BFF for, I believe, at least two years, reviewing all sorts of things about J.P. Morgan, including its disciplinary procedures, But a lot of those facts fit the kind of misconduct that Mr. Polite seemed very agitated to discuss last week. Supervisory employees, let's remember, J.P. Morgan was only one of numerous Wall Street banks that got slapped around by the feds and the others. They were sanctioned last September, collectively paid about $1.1 billion across, I think it was 15 or 16 banks. All of them, the big beef was that they were using unauthorized apps and that supervisory officials knew it. So if you're looking to try and see what would this look like in real life, I think a lot of these abstract principles Polite and Monaco are talking about They look like the Wall Street messaging settlements. Go and review those cases and those documents. Now, Tom, back to your question about, I guess, you know, sanction creep or mission creep that we're going to have more and more employees who might get pulled into this. I do think that's a fair point. I could even see scenarios where, you know, we're talking about clawing back executive compensation. There may be scenarios where the wrongdoers, like they don't have deferred comp, but their supervisory people do. So could we see a scenario where the wrongdoers, there's nothing there to claw back, but the supervisory people who weren't actually engaged in it, but maybe they could have known or should have known, they get the big deferred comp bonus. And now you're going to claw that back, but they weren't actually implicit, complicit in the misconduct. How's that going to work? What are the ramifications or the implications for corporate culture, I'm not necessarily sure. Are you going to change the nature of the executive pay? Are you going to have the supervisors pay more attention to what employees are doing? Which I'm sure Mr. Polite would say, that's the point. Uh, There's a lot of ways that this could echo and reverberate throughout corporate compliance and corporate HR and compensation programs that I think we're just barely beginning to consider. So let's go back to the uh, frontline person, frontline employee that the company sues to take back some form of discretionary compensation. Um, Files lawsuit, employee responds uh, with whatever the original pleading of denial is, whether we call in Texas, we call it a general denial and federal court is called something different. And then the employee immediately asks for discovery of all facts written records, documents, which would support the allegations against him, a completely standard request for production. Except this is year one of a multi-year journey in an FCPA investigation and enforcement action. So you've now sued an employee. That employee has the right to defend himself, and he certainly, he or she has the right to ask for discovery, which forms the basis of the lawsuit against him, and get all of that uh, from the company, including 
specifically what went to the Department of Justice. So that's going to be a huge foobar. And you're going to have multiple. At this point, there's no court overseeing the FCPA investigation. That's still in-house with the Department of Justice and the company. Now you're in a law court with a judge who's only concerned about the lawsuit in front of him. He may be a state court judge who doesn't give a whit what the Department of Justice thinks and could issue lots of uh, injunctions, rulings, or others, which could thoroughly muck up that part of the process as well, all, all the way leading up to an injunction to stop everything so that my little employee can keep his $10 million or not. So this may be a lawyer's dream. Well, that's another good point that I think we need to consider here, as nice as this policy might sound in the abstract, that you know we're giving companies incentive to really go after individuals, and if you do and you set this strong tone, you'll be rewarded. That's a nice abstract principle. In practice, I think that there may be occasions where companies are going to look at this and say, it's not going to be worth it because you have to recoup all of that by the three-year DPA. And we could easily see litigation going longer than three years, in which case you don't get the dollar for dollar credit. You get 25 cents per dollar credit if you are lucky and you you know max out because that's the maximum credit you would receive for a failed exec comp clawback. And maybe it's going to fail not because they win their lawsuit, but just because, you know, shot clock runs out on your efforts here. So one question that comes to my mind is whether companies will think this is not going to be worth the effort for us because this is a low-level employee who caused us a big amount of trouble, didn't have a large amount of compensation we can claw back. It's not going to be that you know, much money against our penalties, given our legal fees. Kevin Polite even said as much. He hinted at this, really. He didn't say it outright, but he did say, where exactly is it? I have his quote here. We are not trying to incentivize waste. On the contrary, companies should make an assessment about the potential cost to shareholders and prospect of success for clawback litigation, giving any applicable laws, and weigh it against the value of recoupment and proceed in accordance with their stated corporate policies on executive pay. So I think he is acknowledging there that there may be circumstances where this just doesn't make any economic sense for the company, that the litigation costs you would expend to pursue this lofty aim, that's shareholder money too. And if it's not going to be a positive number at the end, then why are we doing this? So again, I'd like I like the idea of this, but I do think that in practice, there's going to be an awful lot of questions. But Tom, I think fundamentally, this underlines the point that there is an enormous amount of really math and corporate policy development and management you're going to have to sit down and figure out with your legal team and your HR team and maybe even senior executives about what tone do we want to set here, because this is going to be complicated to figure out. And you would need to know, well, what are the facts? How much compensation could we claw back? How long would this take? Would it take longer in one state rather than another? What's if it's an overseas employee? Where's the jurisdiction? If you want to stack the deck in favor of some favorable jurisdiction for you, the company, that's fine, but you have to make sure that all of your employment agreements say that. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that we will have to think through at the policy level and at the compensation compliance level. And I know for large companies, I know that there are those who do have compensation compliance people on staff. 
I don't know if they're HR people or compliance people, but I've seen that role. And I think those people are going to be busy with these kind of new policies and pilot programs. The You want to go into the updates to the ECCP around this area? Sure. Save that. No, so go right ahead. There was, yeah, there was a, a fair amount of discussion in the, the new evaluation or the 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs around this issue. I was first interested, Matt, by the change in name, consequence management. And at first, I thought that's a bureaucrat's dream that somebody specifically has a job and their job duties and job reflecting in their job title is to come up with bureaucratic words for pronouncements. But it's actually fairly descriptive. Any thoughts as a wordsmith yourself who uses words for a living? Any thoughts on just that term, consequence of management? Well, I mean, obviously, my immediate thought is I am ready to use that term, consequence management, with my children as soon as they deserve the consequence. I'm waiting to drop that term in a casual conversation. We got dinner in about an hour. I'm betting that I'll be able to use it by then. But I think that, you know, really... It underlines a bigger point. If you look at these new guidelines and what they are talking about in this section, as much as we are all caught up in the intrigue and nuance of clawbacks and executive compensation, most of the new material within the consequence management section is actually about disciplinary procedures and how you decide them, how you decide what the disciplinary policies are how you decide specific cases and who decides what, how transparent the company is with other employees when they have a compliance violation that might result in some sort of termination of a wrongdoer. I can already hear the employment lawyers out there losing their lunch at the idea that the Justice Department wants you to be more transparent about employee disciplinary actions. I don't see why, because it's not like workers don't already know everything anyways, just we pretend We're not allowed to talk about it, but it's a lot about that. It's a lot about how you gauge the effectiveness of your disciplinary procedures, how you document all of that. So when they say consequence management, it really is talking about disciplinary efforts, and they talk a lot about disciplinary efforts in these updated guidelines. They talk more about that than they do about clawbacks. They talk about the clawbacks, too. And they talk more about it here than they did in previous incarnations of the guidance. But really, this is about disciplinary stuff. I guess the point I drew from that extended discussion is I think a lot of companies in the past would have either allowed an employee to resign, perhaps with a financial consequence, perhaps not. But it would have been done quietly. And it would have been done in a way that if you and I came in and audited, we would see employee resigned. And that would be the end of it. And we would have no ability from an audit, auditable or audit trail perspective to determine how much discipline a company had put in place and whether that discipline was actually implemented with specific employees, let alone the effectiveness of that discipline on other employees. And so I guess what I saw was an effort is exactly what you said. The department wants greater transparency around this. They want an audit trail for each employee. That's going to change completely the calculus of the employment lawyers, whether they've kept their lunch or not. Um, They're going to have to rethink an approach that employment law has had at least since the 1980s and perhaps even earlier on what you document, because now the Justice Department wants to see that documentation for employees who were engaged or even alleged to have engaged in the illegal conduct 
under the FCPA. And I think that that's going to ruffle feathers, but cause a lot of people to have to think through in a very different way the approach they've taken in the past. So here are the two questions that I found in the guidance that I think are directly on to your point there, Tom. Question one out of many more questions, but has the company taken steps to restrict disclosure or access to information about the disciplinary process? Are there legal or investigation-related reasons for restricting information, or have pretextual reasons been provided to protect the company from whistleblowing or outside scrutiny? And that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road here. You would need to think through there are certainly going to be occasions maybe around an individual's right to privacy or potential civil litigation where you don't want to disclose all of the relevant details about a misconduct case. But the department is trying to get to the point that if you have misconduct that is happening and you fire an employee for that, we want to know that other employees have seen that action. So they'll say there, but for the grace of God, go I. I'm not going to violate the FCPA like that poor sucker who just got canned. So how are we going to balance those two needs? I don't know. I do know that it will require some pretty extensive and thoughtful documentation. So again, what are the compliance capabilities that you would need to be able to meet those kind of demands? This is Tom Fox a again. Clear audit I'm pleased trail, to announce that compliance into the weeds won a 2022 some Communicators Award in two categories level, for the, the best co-host and for best level, business not podcast. Just, so thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Award. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week to make sure that another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you thought about starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either help you produce your podcast or put you on the compliance podcast network. This is Tom Fox, the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. So you'll need to think that through and what are the frameworks we use? What are the policies we have to guide us? What's the documentation we gather? How do we store it? How do we audit it and assess it from periodic times to make sure that it's all effective? That's all going to become more important to get right. That seems like a good place to end this discussion, Matt. I'm sure we'll be revisiting these two speeches and the documentation released last week again. I am sure too, Tom. We have barely begun to scratch the surface here. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.